Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. I'm Mark Carter. What follows is our second introduction to grain marketing webinar hosted by Marty Hibbs. Uh, the first webinar is already available for download in this podcast feed or at gfo.ca. Uh, our next webinar will be held in two weeks on March 6, 2019. Uh, if you have any questions, please contact web at gfo.ca. everybody to death because this is a an introductory course of course and uh, we already covered some topics just some of the ideas that we're going to be doing uh, over the coming weeks we're hoping to do one of these webinars about every two weeks we will be categorizing them so that you can go back and look at certain topics that you want to focus on or that you weren't sure about and it'll be a nice library once we finish the whole project that you can go back and actually use for reference. So starting uh, today, what we're going to look at is uh, comparing, first of all, we've got uh, the, right now, most farmers, we're gonna be dealing with farmers here. So even though the futures markets deal with a broad spectrum of commodities, which include financials, things like T-bills, and then currencies, uh, Japanese yen, Canadian dollar, um, the live cattle market, hog market, uh, the metals, gold, silver, platinum, go on and on and on. Uh, we are going to focus primarily on grain. So if it gets a bit boring, it's because this is for the grain farmers of Ontario and mostly they can relate to grains and of course that's our primary focus. So uh, without hesitation, what we're going to look at right now is the typical marketing strategies that most farmers, most of you guys already use. Cash sales, for example, everybody understands and knows what cash sales are. Time to pay the bills. Uh, price looks attractive. A farmer simply sells his crop, receives the cash, and uh, does what he wants with it. He can go to the casino or pay his bills, whatever. But the idea is that when you sell the crop, which you have on hand, get your cash, sale is done, and you're out of the market. Virtually, it's a done deal. Second most popular one probably is forward contract. Now, with forward contract, um, it's a little bit different. Usually forward contract is uh, committing to a delivery of a contract of your grain uh, to either an elevator or an end user or in sometimes even to us here at GFO. And what it is, it's a legal commitment to uh, deliver your grain to us for a specific price that it's agreed upon at the time of the contract and at a specific time. So for example, right now, if you're looking at selling, say, your crop for 2019 and you like the price, which I doubt if you will, but if you did like the price and said, okay, we want to sell a portion of this crop. So you'd call me and say, Marty, we want to sell a couple of hundred tons of soft red wheat. What's your price? I would give you a price. You enter into an agreement. Uh, we'd fax you the contract and it's a done deal. Basically what happens at that point is that contract has to be fulfilled because it's an agreement between you and grain farmers of Ontario and you have to deliver uh, the wheat uh, to a specified location at the time when we set up the contract. So that's very common and uh, there are some advantages and disadvantages of, of course. Uh, the next one is the pool. A lot of people aren't really familiar with the pool but basically the way the pool works is here at GFO we get wheat from farmers a percentage of their wheat and said hey look 
uh, harvest is here. We don't have enough space for all this wheat. Uh, we don't want to sell it. The prices are low. Can you do better than us? And the idea is that we take wheat in the pool in hopes and anticipation that over the next nine months or year, we have better opportunities to sell that wheat for you and hopefully get a better price. Now, of course, no guarantees. Uh, depends what the wheat market does. But the idea is instead of dumping it all on the market at once and getting your worst price, you allocate a certain percentage of it to the pool. And um, we'll go into detail about how that pool works. Uh, but in the beginning, you're, you would get an initial payment, which is usually about $135 to $140 per ton. You get that up front. And then from there, you've got about 65 to 75% of your money up front. And we continue to market the wheat throughout the year. And at the end of the year, you get a final payment and another interim payment. We'll go into more detail, but you get that in January. So that's another option. Then, of course, the last one is the one we're going to talk about the most. It's the futures market. And a lot of people um, are familiar with the futures markets, but there's a lot of people out there that would like to be more proactive and use the futures market. It's a very slick tool. And again, it is a tool. And the, the reason I like it is it gives you so much more freedom about what you would like to be able to do with your crop. Uh, with the, the futures markets, you can basically be in and out as often as you want and have full control of whether or not you've uh, owned your crops or you've locked them in at a price. And we'll get into all those details uh, quite a bit to get, in, uh, to get through, so we'll, we'll just keep on moving on from here. So again, as we said before, uh, forward contract, you locked in your price for the delivery. The farmer is expected uh, to fulfill the agreement and deliver that product. So once you set an agreement for a forward contract, it is locked in. It's a legal binding agreement and it's between two people and there's no real way out of it unless um, you, know, you make arrangements with the person that you sold it to. Uh, by selling it into the forward contract, you are assured of a final price. But when the forward contract price, it locks in the risk, takes the risk out of the market. But the problem is if, if prices continue to go higher, then there's no way you can take advantage of, of what you've already sold. That is your price and it's done. Um, unable to benefit from potential moves. That just means basically if, say for example, we had a big move in wheat over the next few months and you have forward contracted, you cannot get an adjustment in price. So again, legal contract binding and you have to deliver against it and that's the price you get regardless of, of what happens. So that's a bit of a disadvantage with the forward contracts. Uh, and then of course must be delivered. Um, the wheat pool itself, uh, again, is operated by Grain Farmers of Ontario. Uh, farmers deliver their wheat to a local elevator that's specified or a terminal between June 1st and September 30th of a harvest year. At that point, the farmer will get an initial payment paid directly to you, lessons, less the licensing fee, handling fee, transportation cost, and uh, it will be approximately 65 to 70 percent of the actual value of the wheat that you're putting in the pool. Delivery to the terminal will result in payment from Grain Farmers of Ontario minus the license fees. And of course the grain will be marketed throughout that crop year. So if you deliver uh, in say July of 2019, we'll market that wheat for you right through as a pool until probably the next May. So that gives us a lot of time to market it and hopefully, as we said, try and get a better price for you. 
Uh, once you get your initial payment, you will get an interim payment in January, which is equates to about another 10%. And then finally, when the books are all done in August, you will get your final payment. So again, it's not uh, probably the most popular one as far as percentage-wise, but it is something to consider that if you might want to say uh, take 10, 20, even 30% of your crop and allocate it to the pool as opposed to just uh, selling it straight out. Uh, the wheat delivered between June 1st and the 30th of September for grain farmers are not under contract. So if you deliver wheat uh, to an elevator and say it's for GFO and you don't have a contract with us, then it will automatically go in the pool. Futures contracts, okay, here we go. So futures contracts are unique in so many different ways, but let's start off here. Some of the to topics would be that it locks in an instant price when desired. This means basically if you're looking at the markets during the day and you see a big move in the uh, soybeans or wheat, let's say wheat was up 20 cents today, you could actually go into the futures market, which is an exchange, and sell wheat at that price and probably get a jump on the elevator because the elevators don't change the prices quite as fast as the markets themselves. So that's just one little example. We'll get a lot more into detail. Futures markets don't consider basis. The futures markets are based in Chicago. They're based in U.S. dollars. So there's no um, basis as far as local basis is concerned or supply and demand in the local area. So they don't consider that. They also don't consider the Canadian dollar. But as a raw hedge, that's the price we go by. It's the Chicago price in U.S. dollar. But again, it doesn't consider your basis. Very easy to enter, enter and exit without a penalty. Just to give you a quick example, today you see something in the market that looks like it's going to move higher. You're happy with the price. You sell your wheat at $5.25 in the futures market. Um, a news item comes out that looks like there's going to be a very bullish uh, report coming out in a few days. And you say, oh, I should have waited. Well, the beauty of this market is you can simply go back in and cover your position with no penalty whatsoever. You might make, you might lose some money, but it's whatever the market is. So you can easily go in and out as many times as you wish. Not saying you're going to make or lose money, but the idea is that there's no commitment, no delivery required, and it's almost like a side bet. The other thing about the futures contracts, especially if you are what we call a long hedger, we will get into that later. So if you take a company like um, a lumber company, a company that purchases lumber for whatever reason, maybe for house builders, if they foresee the need to purchase lumber a year out from now, instead of having to pay cash for that lumber, what they would do is buy it in the futures market, which requires 3 to 5% um, deposit. So they'd only have to put up three to 5% actual cash on hand to purchase, say $100,000 worth of lumber, as opposed to putting up the $100,000. So that's another big advantage of trading these markets as far as being cash strapped or uh, utilization of your funds. Again, just preliminary, we'll get a lot more into it. Futures market, no delivery commitment. A futures contract has an expiry date. So for example, if we're talking about March, uh, corn, the March futures contract actually expires in March of this year. So if you are in the futures contract, you have to, you have one obligation, you have to close out your position. So if you are in the market in the sense that you've hedged your crop and you've sold a wheat contract for March, 
you do not have to deliver wheat to that contract because it's in Chicago, you can't anyway, but your only commitment is that you offset the contract. So in other words, if you sold a wheat contract, your only commitment is to go back in and buy it back before it expires. If you own a wheat contract, means you're long wheat expecting wheat to go up for whatever reason, your only commitment is to sell that wheat contract before the contract expires. So it's a buy and a sell, a sell and a buy, it doesn't matter which one you do first. Your only commitment in this market is to offset your position before the market expires. It's a nice feature as well. And of course, uh, brokerage accounts, we'll discuss them in detail. Full service brokerages, uh, do-it-yourself brokerages online, uh, but they are required if you're dealing with the futures markets. Okay, so basically, to get back to the beginning about how it all started, um, Back in the 1850s, the invention of the McCormick Reaper, as everybody knows, made grain production front and center with many more modern and efficient uh, yield-producing uh, fields. The problem with that is it caused a bit of a glutton, one area after another, and um, the main problem was to try and distribute this because if you were last to market and uh, you were the last one there and everybody had their fill of grain, you would probably end up throwing yours in the in the river and you wouldn't get paid for it. So that became a bit of a problem. So uh, the Midwest was an obvious pl uh, place to do trade for many, many reasons because uh, it was a major player because it was on the Mississippi River. It was a natural trading ground for the farmers to meet and, and uh, do business. Uh, they produced a huge industry all in itself where they shipped grains from these ports all around the world. Also at that point, there was many, many rail transportation uh, sub-hubs in that area as well. So it was a natural place to store and sell grain. And that was uh, one of the reasons that Chicago became so big back in the 1850s. As far as the futures contract itself, we want to get into a bit of a definition here. Basically what they are is they're a financial instrument that allows market participants to offset or assume the risk of a price change of an asset over time. So put in simple terms, if you are at risk with any kind of a commodity, and give you a couple of examples. As a farmer, your big concern is that the price of wheat, corn, or beans, or oats is going to drop. If it does, you could end up losing money. So what we do with the futures markets is we go into the market and we take an opposite position that you are looking at. So for example, if you have uh, for sake of argument, 10,000 bushels of corn, and you like the price of corn for delivery in, uh, say, August or September. What you want to do is to be able to lock in that price because the corn is not out of the ground yet, and what you want, you do like the price. So what you would do is you would sell uh, 10,000 bushels of corn into the futures market. Once the corn is harvested later in the season, you would still take the corn to market like you normally would do and you would sell it. Now if you locked in your price on the futures market, let's say at $4 a bushel, then the risk is taken out of the market because you have already agreed on a futures contract to sell it at 4 bucks. Once the corn comes out of the ground, we find prices have fallen dramatically and you take it to the cash market and now you're finding out that it's only worth $3 a bushel. Well, here's what happens. You go ahead and you sell your corn for $3 a bushel you phone your broker and you say, I sold corn on a contract at $4 and now it's at 3 
I'd like to close my contract and buy it back. So in effect, you sold corn on the futures for $4, and you closed it or bought them back at three, which means you've made a dollar profit per bushel, which is the exact same dollar you've just lost by going to the cash market and selling your corn at $3. So by using the futures contracts, what it does is it takes the risk out of the market. Unless you're a speculator, your biggest concern in business today is your cost, cost of production, cost of goods. And again, there's two sides to the coin. You are the farmer, you're worried about the price of corn dropping. If you are a cattle farmer, on the other hand, and you have to feed your cattle, your concern is no longer the price dropping. Your concern is that the price will rise and it'll cost you more to buy that corn to feed those cattle. So in this case, you could use the futures market. If you think the corn prices are low and you like them, you might step in and say, I want to buy a contract or 5,000 bushels of corn here at $3.20 for delivery six months from now. Well, six months from now, corn's up to $4. So you go into the physical market and you've got to pay $4 US for the corn. Well, you bought it in a futures contract at 320, it's at four, you sell your contract, you've made 80 cents. So you've basically broken even. So it's not a thing where you're going to try and do to make money off this. What you're trying to do is prevent yourself from losing money or more important, control your costs. Because the number one problem in any business is controlling costs. Some other examples would be maybe a trucking company that has to use fuel, uh, diesel oil for their diesels. And uh, they go through hundreds of thousands of gallons of diesel fuel. If they don't know what the price going forward is, how can they quote on what it would cost to ship something somewhere? So their big risk factor is the price of diesel. And if it should spike or go up dramatically in price, then they're going to be in trouble financially because their bottom line is going to be hurt seriously by the big increase in fuel costs. And it's the same way with airline companies. Okay, so a futures contract is a distinct from a forward contract in two important ways. First, the futures contract is a legally buying agreement to buy or sell a standardized assets, asset on a specific date for a specific month. And the second part is it's transacted through a futures exchange. This has got to be done through an exchange which is very similar to a bank. So there's a third party involved here. The fact that futures contracts are standardized and exchange traded makes these instruments indispensable to producers, consumers, traders, and investors. So the idea that the contracts that we're dealing with are standardized. That means that a bushel of corn is a bushel of corn is a bushel of corn. If for some reason uh, the corn was substandard, there would be a, a factor in there to bring it back up to a certain standard but it's still corn, it doesn't change. Gold is gold is gold, Canadian dollar contract is the same thing. So they are standardized and that's a very important factor when you're dealing with these uh, contracts worldwide. So here's three key points for a futures contract that are important. All futures contracts have to be standardized. Fungible meaning that they're interchangeable. As I said before, if I buy corn, I'm getting corn. I know what I'm getting. I'm not getting something weird or some off growth of corn. I'm getting corn. And if there's a matter of difference as far as things like um, 
a disease in the corn or a grading issue, it's simply add it to the price to standardize it so that it, you'll be compensated if it's a substandard or you'll be penalized if it's a premium or a substandard or, or the opposite. The second feature in futures contracts is they have to be non-perishable. And that's very important because if you're entering into contracts for future delivery and you have a product that is perishable, that product may not be able to make it to delivery point. For example, years ago when I first got in the markets, they had a potato contract. And it was short-lived because potatoes don't have much of a shelf life and they grow eyes and spuds and they rot. So for that reason, it did not work as a hedging tool. So there's one there, for example, that would not work. So it has to be non-perishable. And of course, the third is volatility. If a contract does not have volatility, then the demand for that contract is going to be negligible. And the reason being is because if we knew that the price of wheat was automatically five bucks year after year after year after year, why would you have to worry about the price? Why would you have to hedge it? What we're looking for is volatility so that if a crude oil uh, firm or a, a trucking firm again was worried about the price of crude oil doubling, which we've seen many, many, many times, then there's risk involved. So to alleviate that risk, they go into the futures market and lock in the price. And by locking in the price, whether good or bad, going forward, they know their exact cost and what it's going to cost them for that crude oil. Okay? So three key features for a futures contract. Standardiza standardiza standardization, which means they're fungible. Non-perishable goods, it can't be perishable. And they have to have volatility to make it worthwhile that we can use the markets to get rid of, of the risk. So a standardized contract is an exchange-traded futures contract. It specifies the quality, the quantity, the physical delivery time and location for that given product. So for example, uh, with the grains, with the size, we're talking about 5,000 bushels. So whether it's corn, soybeans, wheat, they're all 5,000 bushels. The date in this case, it says is March, which means it, is, it expires in March. So by March, it has to be fulfilled. This contract has to either be delivered, if you're in the U.S., or your choice, offset. And offset just simply means you phone your broker or you go online yourself and you close it out. Just like playing online poker. I bought wheat for 420 this morning. This afternoon it's 425. I go, wow, it's up a nickel a bushel. I like that. I can go in immediately and within 30 seconds take my five cent profit and it'll go in my account per bushel. So that's how easy it is to use these futures markets. The specifications of the contracts are identical for all participants. This means that the characteristics of the futures contract allow buyers and sellers to easily transfer ownership from one contract to another. Given the standardization of the contract specs, the only contract variable is the price. And that's up for auction. So if you look at your quote screen, you might see a bid ask, corn, 401 to 401 and a half. It means the person that's selling it wants 401 and a half. The guy that wants to buy it from you is only offering 401. Once it comes to an agreement in the middle, you've got a deal. And that's basically how price quoting works. Exchange traded, okay? So again, these contracts are traded on exchanges. Exchanges are very unique in the sense that they act as a third party. So the exchange guarantees that the contract will be honored. So it eliminates counterparty risk. So every exchange traded futures contract is cleared through what we call a clearinghouse. 
And this basically means that when you're buying wheat from somebody, you're not buying it from a person. You're buying it from the clearinghouse who in turn is selling it to somebody else. So they're the middleman. So for every buy, there's a sell. For every sell, there's a buy. So you never get to see this middleman. You don't know who they are. You don't care who they are. The, the guy in the middle, which is the clearinghouse, takes all the buys, matches them with all the sells, and he facilitates the whole deal, and the contracts are closed out. So that's a great advantage where you don't have to deal individually with any one particular person or farmer or elevator. And it greatly re uh, reduces the credit risk associated with default if you're dealing with some guy that sold you uh, grains and for some reason, whatever reason, he can't deliver them. This never happens, and in the history, uh, of almost 175 years, there's never been one single default on the futures contract in any of the major exchanges in North America. So by bringing confident buyers and sellers together on the same trading platform, the exchange enables participants to enter and exit the market with ease, making futures highly liquid and the optimal for price discovery. And basically we'll get into all of this, what price discovery is, very important, and the idea how easy it is to transact these contracts. So here's four more. We got futures contract attributes. So every futures contract will include the following four attributes. Number one, what's the underlying asset? Number two, what's the quantity of the underlying asset? Number three, the delivery location, because there's many, many exchanges around the country uh, exchanging things or trading things from natural gas to precious metals to corn. As you can well imagine, there has to be delivery locations and agreements in place. And finally, last but not least, is the delivery date, okay? So the underlying asset, in this case, it could be grains, as we said, it could be energies, uh, it could be currencies, it could be metals, it could be live hogs, it could be S&P futures, it could be treasury bills. The list just keeps going on, it's huge. So. When you're entering into a contract, it'll tell you specifically what the contract is. Once you see the contractor, you want to buy the contract. For example, if you wanted to buy crude oil, crude oil trades in 1,000 barrels of crude. So that means basically a contract of crude oil is 1,000 uh, barrels, which means it has a leverage factor of 1,000 to 1. So if you buy crude oil and it went up $1 within the next 10 minutes, you've made $1,000. Likewise, if you sold crude oil and it went up a, a dollar per barrel, you would have just lost $1,000. So the multiplier, again, is the size of the contract. The quantity of the asset in grains is pretty much the same across the board. We have 5,000 bushels in wheat, corn, soybean, oats, um, what else, barley. Uh, we do have many contracts, but as a rule, I've never done much with them and I don't fool much with them. I like the big contracts, um, but the problem, one problem with them is that it is a big contract. So unless you have 5,000 bushels, it's kind of tough to use that particular contract for hedging your position. Now with the 1,000 contract or a 1,000 bushel contract, that might be more appropriate. But again, uh, they do have them, but they might be a little bit more expensive because of the size and the volatility or the uh, liquidity may not be quite there. So where you're talking about bidding on corn at 230 and one quarter to 230 and one half, the mini contract might say, 
bid 230 offered at 231. It might be a full penny difference between the bid ask because the volume is just not there. Uh, physical location is very important with each of these and it's, it's written right into the contract. Some require warehouse receipts, some require shipping and logistics. Uh, for example, if you want uh, natural gas, you need to go to a port uh, in, in uh, New York. Whereas if you want uh, the grains, uh, there's grain terminals all around the world that they can tell you where you're going to either deliver or pick up your grains. And you might just get a warehouse receipt. And in the case of metals, most of the time it's a warehouse receipt saying that the Comex or some other bank has uh, 1,000 ounces of silver or 5,000 ounces of silver with a receipt and you simply get the receipt and you pay for storage. The final item in the contract, of course, is the delivery date. Delivery dates are basically set in stone. When the March contract expires, it's off the board, it's gone, it's no longer valid. So there are set times when you have to get in, not in, sorry, you have to exit your contract. So again, two ways to fulfill your contract. If it's a March contract, you have to either deliver it uh, the product to fulfill the contract and again you can't do that in Chicago but you could do it here uh, in Canada if you dealt with the Winnipeg Exchange. Uh, the other way is just simply to offset it. So what we're really doing with these futures contracts is we're using them as a tool to hedge our positions for a temporary time. So in other words it's like a, a placeholder. We like the price of wheat. It's at seven dollars. We love it. Uh, it's in the ground. We can't sell it. We go into the futures market. We say sell wheat here. It's showing at seven bucks and then we forget about it. It's done. You've sold your wheat at seven because if it drops down to four, you are going to only get four on the physical market, but you're going to gain three on your futures market, which means you still get seven dollars. Okay, so the delivery date set, which means the contract expires. So if you're going to deliver, you have to deliver at a specific point in the contract and by a specific date. And the other option, which is 99% of our clients use, is they will offset that contract, which means simply selling it if they own it or buying it back if you shorted it. And we'll get much more into shorting later on in this session. So here's an example of some contract specs. Contract for corn. The symbol is ZC, Z meaning electronic, C for corn, H is a symbol for the month. And we'll show you the months later, it is not important. Uh, they don't change. H is March and eight would represent 18. So this would tell me that it's uh, March electronic corn for March of 18. That's the symbol, that's the contract. Where does it exchange, uh, uh, trade? It trades on the CBOT exchange. The contract size here, again, 5,000 bushels for each contract. Trading months, F-H-K-N-U-Z. F is January, H is March, K is May, N is July, U is September, and Z or Z is December. And that will become very common to you. Now, I put in corn, you're going to get a bit of a difference if you're doing uh, soybeans because soybeans trade in August, which is Q. They also trade in September and in November, which is an X. So, but it tells under each contract spec the month of the contract it trades. So when you're dealing with these contracts, it's up to you how long you need the protection for. If you have a crop and you want to maybe protect it just for a month or two from now, you would probably want to use the May uh, futures. 
However, if you want to store it and not get rid of it until the fall, you might want to use a September contract. So that way your contract covers you until you're ready to move the product. Because the way it works is once you sell the product, you unwind your position in the futures market. Uh, minimum tick fluctuations, this simply means what's the minimum amount the contract can trade. And in this case, it is 0.25 or one quarter of a cent. Now remember, 5,000 bushels in a contract of wheat or corn means that every penny uh, that wheat moves up or down represents $50 US. Why? Because 5,000 times a penny is $50. So the minimum amount that can move from one trade to the next is a quarter of a cent, what represents $12.50. We'll get into that much later, but again, this is just showing you what a contract spec looks like. So that every contract you look at, if you wanna, if you're interested in trading um, hogs, hogs have their own contract, uh, 40,000 pounds of hog. Uh, crude oil, as I said, has 1,000 barrels. Uh, natural gas has 110,000 uh, B BTUs, uh, I can't remember the exact specs that might have changed, or it's lumber, 110,000 board feet. So every contract is different, and you don't need to learn all of these. What you need to know is the ones that you're trading, you need to be familiar with the specs on that particular contract. And once you learn it, it you learn it, it stays with you. Here's another example here, symbol ZW as wheat. CBOT is the exchange. The trading hours, 8 p.m. to 8.45 is the night session. And then it starts again at 9.30, that's Eastern time, goes to 2.15. Contract size, 5,000 bushels. And the months, quarter of a cent minimum trade or 12.50 per contract. Corn, the same thing, only the symbol is ZC. Uh, beans, ZS. And Minneapolis or spring wheat, MW. So if you look at it, most of them are the same. They trade on different exchanges. Minneapolis is on the MJEX, and the uh, other three are on Chicago. But other than that, they're standardized contracts, and uh, it should be quite easy to learn. So again, basically, here's a summary for the futures markets that we've been talking about. To trade in a standardized product so that you can go and hedge or lock in or reduce the risk of the commodity that you are trading, whether it's steel, uh, aluminum, uh, if you need aluminum because you're an aircraft manufacturer or you build buses, you need to worry about the price of aluminum. If you're uh, a major coffee shop like a Tim Hortons, they're concerned about the price of coffee beans going up. So they would look at the coffee futures out six months and they would know based on that price what they're going to have to pay going forward. So they would lock in that price because if they don't, when the time comes to buy the coffee and it's gone double, then they're probably gonna to have to raise their prices. And more important in that, they don't have a handle on their true costs, which again is critical for any business. Price discovery simply means that if you get enough people together, and trust me, there are tens of thousands of people trading these markets. And when they all agree on any given day that corn should be at $2.40 and one half cent, then that is a good representation of the true market value. And think about it. If it wasn't, people that thought it was undervalued would push the price up, they'd buy it. Or people thought that they were overvalued would just sell a lot of them to push the price down and capture the profit. I, I, like, I like to use a lot of analogies. And one I always use is if you go to a, um, a car auction, and there's not many people there, but all of a sudden this beautiful 1970 W442 
comes rolling off the floor and you look at it and your eyes open wide and you say, wow, I had one of those cars. And you know that car is worth 50, 60 grand, but the people there just don't seem to get it. Some guy offers 10,000 on it. Well, if you're a true uh, collector, what would you do? You would start bidding. You'd still want a deal, but you would bid. But if there's somebody else there likes the car, what happens is the car generally would find its own level, just like water finds its own level. And that's what we call price discovery. The amount a person is willing to pay and the most that a person is willing to, or the, uh, the least a person is willing to sell it for. And that comes down to the true market value at any given time, like any market, like the housing market, uh, like, like uh, going on a trip somewhere. It's whatever the market will bear. And this is called price discovery and one of the true reasons for the exchanges. And again, one of the main reasons for these markets is not a gambling arena, but it's the ability to hedge or reduce one's risk in your business. And I think we're going to pause there for a second. Mark, how are we doing for time? Uh, we're doing great. Uh, I do have uh, one question, Marty, already from the uh, from listeners. Uh, and at this point, too, I will just say, uh, if you do have any more questions, please go into the uh, list of participants and find Mark Carter. Uh, open up a chat window and send it to me, and Marty would be happy to address it. Uh, so the question that we already have, Marty, is uh, you've framed this so far in terms of like how one person or one farmer uses the futures market to offset their risk. Like if I'm a farmer, what am I doing? How do I activate? Can you like tell us the story basically of the other side? Like how does an end user like a big milling company that buys a ton of grain, how are they using the futures market? And like what do we need to know as farmers about how they're acting in the market? Okay, well, basically, it's the same thing, and it's um, the same concept that if, if, if I'm a company, let's say, for example, I am a wheat miller, and I get an order for overseas that I need a couple of hundred thousand tons of wheat. Well, my problem is if I have a commitment, I have to get that wheat, so I've got to go and I've got to buy it, and of course, if, if I'm buying wheat... Uh, I like I liken it to put my foot on the gas pedal. Let's let's give you a scenario, say here in Guelph. If there's a big demand for wheat uh, that somebody has presented to me, and I'm a wheat purchaser, and I look around and no one's really willing to sell, what I have to do is to make it more attractive. I have to increase or strengthen that basis, and that just basically means I'm going to offer a bit more than everybody else, hoping it's going to lure the farmers in to me to sell me their wheat. If I can't get it still, I have to go ahead and push the gas pedal a little bit harder again and increase or strengthen that basis one more time so that these people start coming out of the woodwork and saying, okay, yeah, okay, I like that. Now I start getting wheat that I need to fulfill my contract. Once I get enough, I back off the gas pedal and I've got my wheat to fulfill my contract. But again, we're talking about farmers here only because we're, in, we're with GFO. But any major company out there, take for example a home builder. We've used this many, many times on occasion. I'm a home builder and I'm going to be selling homes next year in Guelph, but I, I can't even break ground until next year because of the, the bureaucratic red tape that's involved with getting all the permits. So, But I want to start selling these homes because I need a cash flow. How do I turn around and sell somebody a home today that's not even going to start being built till to, uh, next year? Uh, without blowing my brains out. How do I do it 
knowing where the market's going to be next year, what's going to cost me to build these homes. Because if I want to be competitive, I have to be realistic. If I'm not realistic and I just throw a number out there, say, ah, 10% higher, well, you know what? That may not work because the guy down the road, if he's using these markets, he says, I can do it for 3% higher. So the concept of these markets is to lock in your price going forward if you are a long hedger knowing what your costs are going to be and then based on those costs they will determine the cost it's going to be for you uh, to buy that house so for example i would go into the market i'd look and say what is uh, july lumber for 2020 worth i need a million board feet so i lock in the price doesn't matter what the price is i lock it in because that's what the price is at the time i need bricks i need steel i need aluminum i need copper uh we said the wood uh, asphalt for the for the and we're talking a lot of houses a whole subdivision it's a big company so they have to lock these raw materials in now once two years comes and i'm ready to start building or next year i look and all the prices have gone in the toilet well that's okay because when I go to uh, take my lumps or I, I close out my account with my brokerage firm, I've lost a lot of money because I bought it at a higher price. But now when I go to buy the physical lumber, it's at half the price that I anticipated. So what it's done, it's put a place stop in the market and says, here is your risk eliminated from the market. It takes the risk out of the market. So the big players are way bigger uh, than the individual farmer. The individual farmer is doing it for himself. Elevators are a bit bigger. They do it as well because the minute elevators buy product from you and they don't have a contract committed to sell it, if they're just storing it for their company and taking a chance, they're taking a big chance because the minute they buy it, it's at risk for price loss because if they have a few hundred thousand tons of grain in their elevator not hedged and what happened today with wheat dropping this past couple of weeks, 10, 20 cents a bushel, that's a big hit. So here at GFO, what we do, my job is when we buy wheat from the farmers, even under contract, the minute we take the contract, we've taken delivery of it in the sense that we have a commitment on paper. I go into the futures market and I sell the equal amount of futures of the wheat that we purchased. So if we purchase wheat today, it's locked into today's price. Now, if it continues to drop, we are making our money back. We've stabilized our price on that futures contract. Does that make sense? Now, on the other hand, if wheat goes up a lot, we're losing money on our futures contract, but we've made it back because we own the physical. So it's locked in that price, so it takes the risk out of the market. And that, again, is the key indicator, the key uh, purpose of these futures market is to take the risk out of the trade. I hope that answers this question. Yeah, we, we while you were uh, answering that question, Marty, we did get one more question uh, from B. Zettler. Uh, why is corn or soy or other commodities not traded every single month? Like, why is it just specific months? And then also as a follow-up to that, why are there more options for soy than corn? Do you know that? Um Okay, uh, first of all, answering the first one, these markets are a matter of trial and error. So what they do is they pick the most, um, what's the word I'm trying to use here? The, the ones that fit, it's a, it's a best fit. So certain times of the year is when they need the product, and that is 
the, the months that they picked. They've probably tried, like we have what we call short dated months now, uh, not contracts, but options. Uh, because there's people that want to hedge out into April and there's no April contract, so they'll actually buy an option that expires uh, in April. So it's just the demand wouldn't be there. If they spread it out over 12 months, it's like anything else. It's not. It's like asking me, why isn't there a gas station on every corner of every street in Guelph? The demand is not there. It doesn't need that demand. People are quite happy with about every three months. That's all. In the beginning, it probably wasn't even every three months. It was probably less. So to the best of my ability, uh, it's set up that it suits the customer's needs and their demands. Great. Thanks, Marty. Uh, and thank you to everybody who's joined us today. That's all the questions that we have. Uh, if you want to share this webinar with anybody, uh, it will be available as a recording. Uh, same thing if you want to go back and listen to it for future reference. Uh, you'll be able to download that through our Grain Talk podcast. You can subscribe to that in iTunes, in Google Play, on Spotify. Uh, or you can uh, download it directly from our website on gfo.ca. Uh, we have another grain marketing webinar coming up. March 6th is the next one. Uh, I hope that at most of you will be able to join us for that one. Uh, you'll get a notification about how to sign up to uh, get reminders and to get the login information for that webinar. Um, one other thing to just remind everybody about, if you're able to make it, uh, next month on March 19th in London is uh, Grain Farmers of Ontario's annual conference, the March Classic. Uh, you can register for that for, uh, for free. Uh, find out more about it at gfo.ca slash marchclassic. Uh, Marty, was there anything else you wanted yeah, to say? Yeah, I, I, I just remembered that gentleman's question. I didn't answer the second part. I'll take a shot at it. So he asked me why it looked like there were more options on soybeans than there were in corn. And I haven't looked at it recently, but there, there would be two reasons. Number one would be price volatility. Because the more price volatility we get, the more risk is there. And people don't necessarily want to lock in futures contracts. We're not going to get into options today, but options are a cheap, inexpensive way to hedge the position without taking a direct position in the futures market. So it's an options on the future. So you buy them, you own them. They're relatively inexpensive to buy. So. Uh, with the volatility, a lot more people may want to hedge the, the soybeans with options than, say, corn. Because let's face it, corn's range might be, what, 3 to $4? Soybeans could be from 8 to 18 It's a big, big, wide range there and a lot more volatility. So my guess would be it's got a lot to do with the volatility factor. Because, again, don't forget, if you are a farmer and you're in a futures position, there is margin. You have to make margin calls. And we'll get into that later. It's a little bit over some people's head right now, but we'll, we will explain it. But that would be the main reason that there would be more. And then plus, maybe it's speculators. A lot of guys speculate on these markets, and the soybeans have a lot wider range that they can move. They will move $2 to $3 for every, say, 50 cents corn moves. So there's more bang for your buck. So that's another reason that options on soybeans would probably be a lot more interesting than say an option on, on corn. I had one lady actually that used to trade a mini corn contract when I got in the business back in 1985 and if I'm not mistaken corn was about two dollars a bushel and it was funny 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 because she was the sweetest old lady she would buy a corn contract which means that every penny corn moved she would make her lose ten dollars and it would take her two or three cent profit just to pay her commission. <laughs> 
So the volatility was not there. Whereas again, in soybeans, like we've seen beans um, up to $18, $19 a bushel. And it's not uncommon for them to move 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 cents a day where corn doesn't move quite that much. So my guess would be the reason there's more option um, traded in beans would be uh, through the volatility factor. All right. Thanks, Marty. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. I hope that I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you join us again for the next one. And I hope you uh, tell a friend and encourage everybody to join our upcoming webinars. Uh, have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Have a great day.